Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. It's Friday, November 24th, 2023. I'm Faith Mafadon. Thanks for tuning in. It's turkey season, and while everyone was preparing their Thanksgiving meals, state leaders in the Greater Boston Food Bank took the time to ensure that all of Eastern Massachusetts had a plate of food to be thankful for this year. The Greater Boston Food Bank, the largest hunger relief organization in New England, held its 18th annual Chain of Giving event this year. And in honor of the Thanksgiving holiday, they were able to feed those in need with the donation of... It's really important that we end hunger in Massachusetts. It impacts the ability of people to have a home, to have enough food, to stay in their jobs, to have good health care, to feed their kids. So we want people to fully support and understand that one in three of our residents are hungry. And many of those are do experience homelessness, which you've seen in the news. So please help us, please support. We're so grateful to all of our donors today in the chain of giving. One in three folks in Massachusetts do experience food insecurity over 30% of our residents. And the numbers are compounded, of course, by inequities, 61% of Latino residents, 50% of black residents, 45% of LGBTQ residents struggled at some point last year to put food on the table. That is the reality here in Massachusetts. That's the goal of our affordability agenda. It's why we worked with our partners, yes, to make breakfast, lunch, free, permanently in schools for every child in the state. Over 150 individuals took part in the tradition of passing turkeys, nearly 1,000 from delivery trucks to Greater Boston Food Bank's freezer. But this is just the tip of the iceberg, as the organization will give out 27,000 turkeys and other poultry alternatives to pantries throughout eastern Massachusetts during this holiday season. Hunger affects people of all demographics, and Greater Boston Food Bank's efforts to feed thousands of Boston families are appreciated, especially now. It is unacceptable that one in three residents in eastern Massachusetts does not know where their next meal is coming from. They can't function at school. They can't function at work. They can't function in an environment to support their family. The Greater Boston Food Bank is the largest hunger relief organization in New England. And our mission is to provide healthy meals to those in need. In Boston, the numbers are even more intense. One in five of our residents are experiencing food insecurity. As, as stated, disproportionately impacting communities of color. And we know that this leads to all of the health impacts, the, the challenges as we look to rebuild our communities and our economy. This is at the very core of whether people can give their families what they need. The event also recognized three Boston Latin School students who raised $1,000 through their Cookies for a Cause big sale. The funds are donated to this campaign for hunger relief. I think that it's just wrong that people should be sleeping every night on an empty stomach. I think it, it's for the most part, it's like inhumane. The fact that we have so much in the society that can help others instead, but still some people choose to just like keep it to themselves. And I believe that like through baking cookies and just doing everything that we can to just help this like small, even like the smallest amount of money can go such a long way to help so many families. There's a joy in giving and a joy in thanksgiving. And yes, both were front and center at this year's Greater Boston Food Bank's annual Thanksgiving turkey pass.
In Brighton, seniors from the Greater Boston Chinese Golden Age Center came together to celebrate their persisting spirit and some of the center's most dedicated volunteers at their annual Thanksgiving luncheon. In Brighton last week, Mayor Wu and eight-strong Commissioner Emily Shea joined seniors from Greater Boston Chinese Golden Age Center at Tintin Restaurant to give thanks and celebrate with song, dance, good food, and old friends. We're here today with our partners, the Greater Boston Chinese Golden Age Center, celebrating Thanksgiving and also volunteerism. Um, with our older residents and it's so important that we all come together for celebrations like this. Um, social connectedness is kind of the root of people being happy and enjoying each other and so that's why uh, settings like this where people can come together, um, enjoy some food, enjoy some celebrations and some performances, they're just so important to good aging in Boston. 18 volunteers from their senior center in Brighton who have devoted time to teach ESL, dancing, and other activities were honored for their ongoing contributions to the community. It is very important for older people to be out participating in all kinds of activities, such as dancing, telling stories, singing, whatever interests you. The main, the key to keep yourself healthy is to participate. The Greater Boston Golden Age Center was founded in 1972 and has three sites, all seeking to enable Chinese-speaking elders to overcome linguistic barriers and access services that help them live and age comfortably. The sites offer a network of programs, including food and nutrition, work study, mental health, and social events to bolster their well-being. The holidays are such a fun time of year, but it also can be quite lonely for many people. And um, especially as we are trying to build a community that really reflects everyone in every generation, it's so important to have the social activities, the uh, opportunities for people to have fun and enjoy at every stage of life. And so we saw some, a little bit of ballroom dancing in the restaurant and singing and even Chinese opera and some karaoke. So it was a fun time and I'm so thankful to see this happening all year round. Last Saturday, Boston students had the chance to seek new possibilities at the annual Metco Showcase. In Roxbury, parents and students explored new possibilities at the annual Metco Showcase, where they learned about educational opportunities for Boston children that put them one step ahead. If I didn't get into Mecca, I would have been distracted a lot. And, you know, I feel like Mecca really helped me in academics. I have a lot of opportunity. I met great people. Like, if I didn't go to Mecca, I wouldn't know what lacrosse was. I wouldn't know rugby. I know all these cool different sports and I've met all these new different people. And I've been offered leadership opportunities. I got in to throw a Juneteenth celebration at my school and spread my culture with them. So it was just a great opportunity. METCO, the Metropolitan Council for Educational Opportunity, has enrolled tens of thousands of Boston students in predominantly white school districts, making it possible for students to learn in a racially and ethnically diverse setting. METCO supports over 3,100 families in 33 participating school districts and 190 public schools, with graduation rates and college attainment far above state averages. 
What I love about MECO is that it's an integration program that is voluntary, right? So kids are coming and participating in our program. They're getting amazing education, incredible sports, amazing buildings, the opportunity to build interracial friendships and to prepare for a global economy. And it's a win-win situation for both our diverse students from Boston and our suburban students who get to study together in the same classroom. Medco has streamlined their registration process, which now allows families to apply using their child's birth certificate, parent guardian ID, and proof of Boston residency. Parents can rank their desired school districts so that students can be assigned according to their family's preference. So it's important to introduce my son to um, a new environment, a different district. I'm also an alum from Belmont and had great experiences. We're able to meet new people, different cultures, and I'd like to immerse them in something similar. Medco has streamlined their registration process, which now allows families to apply using their child's birth certificate, parent guardian ID, and proof of Boston residency. Parents can rank their desired school districts so that students can be assigned according to their family's preference. I want to place my daughter in the medical program because I want to be able to give her a better opportunity. I want her to excel in her career. I want to put her in classrooms where she'd be exposed to opportunities that she probably wouldn't be exposed to had she went to a school outside of Medco. I want her to be able to interact with students from all socioeconomic backgrounds. For 57 years, Medco has provided public education at no cost to students in suburban school districts. With rigorous classes, multiple options for team sports, and extracurricular activities. The results speak for themselves and high graduation and college attendance rates. It's definitely a positive experience. It had a great impact on my life personally as I went through the program. And now I'm the director for Reddit Public Schools. I was able to build lifelong relationships with kids from different communities uh, where I got to learn about them and their community. And they got to come to Boston and learn about me and my community. And how that played out is that as we became adults, uh, we, we were able to judge each other by the content of our character, like Martin Luther King would say, versus what we see on TV. So we genuinely built relationships through school and then through education um, that helped us build a strong bond um, of lifelong friendships. In October, the Boston City Council passed a resolution to change the name of the iconic Faneuil Hall to a name that no longer honors the slave trader and owner, Peter Faneuil. BNN correspondent Aditya Iyer spoke with residents who have mixed reactions. A resolution to change the name of Faneuil Hall was passed by city councilors at a meeting on October 25th, with three city councilors voting against the resolution. The reason for why the name change is happening? The history behind the man that Faneuil Hall is named after. We began to focus uh, particularly on uh, a place called Faneuil Hall in the city of Boston because uh, Peter Faneuil was a slave owner and a slave trafficker. Activist Kevin Peterson has fought to rename Faneuil Hall since the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020. Policy for Progress says in 2021, more than half of Boston residents support changing the name of Faneuil Hall. But not everyone agrees. I know he owned slaves, but almost everybody did back then. This place used to get, um, you know, 14, 15 million visitors a year. This part. And... They all know it by the name Faneuil Hall. Some believe just because it's always been called Faneuil Hall, we shouldn't keep honoring Peter Faneuil. As a, as a person who 
can connect his uh, uh, family legacy to slavery, the, the repair and the reconciliation that needs to uh, follow uh, in the wake of addressing issues of race uh, in 2023 is uh, important. So Peter Faneuil's name on that building is an insult to, to me personally. Some of the proposed names for Faneuil Hall include Freedom Hall, Liberty Hall, and Crispus Attucks Hall. But the name itself will be finalized after community discussions. This is Aditya Iyer signing off for BNN. The Pequot Nation was once the largest Native American population in the Northeast, with over 16,000 tribe members in eastern Connecticut. But in 1636, that all changed. The Pequot War amongst the English colonies, Narragansett tribe, and Mohegan tribe brought desolation, slavery, and genocide to the once prosperous and thriving Pequot Nation. Ohio University professor of history, Margaret Newell, joined us in studio to talk about the Pequot War and its disastrous impact on the Pequot people. Here's the interview. Recently, you gave a talk at Boston Public Library about the Pequot War. Mm -hmm. um, can you share for our viewers, what was the Pequot War? When did it happen and who was involved? Well, the Pequot War was one of the first major conflicts between the English colonists of New England and the indigenous peoples here. It involved all of the existing or emerging colonies of New England at that time, so representatives from Massachusetts Bay, from Plymouth, from the new colony of Connecticut, and from the soon-to-be colony of Rhode Island uh, were, were all involved on the English side, as well as t a number of other indigenous groups that supported the English in this war on the Pequots. Mm. And it took place, uh, really, the first battles began in the summer of 1636, which involved an attack on Block Island, actually, on the indigenous people of Block Island. Um, and then the war really came to Pequot country in earnest in 1637 and 1638. Hmm. And can you talk about uh, the ramifications and the devastation that came out of the Pequot War? Well, the Pequot War was devastating for the Pequot people. So this was a nation that had numbered as many as 32,000 people. You know, they were, they were, you know, that's, it took Philadelphia until 1800 to reach that population level. So, I mean, this is a substantial population, a thriving community that had lived in the region um, on the Thames River in Connecticut, not too far from modern day New London and Groton and those areas. This was Pequot territory, it was that southern Connecticut, Long Island Sound area. The Pequot had lived there for at least 1200 years uh, prior, you know, prior to this uh, moment of contact with the English colonists. So the Pequot War uh, resulted in the death of many, many Pequots. There's a famous battle took place which involved an English assault on a Pequot village near modern-day Mystic. And of the 700 people in this fort, uh, almost 500 people were killed at the moment. And wow. survivors were taken captive. Um, other battles ensued, and what interests me about the Pequot War and one of the one of the devastations besides this death, destruction of their cornfields, their homes, was the uh, captivity of the Pequots and the way that captivity kind of became a goal for the English colonists as the war progressed, mm -hmm. and they tended to go after the places where women and children had sh gone to shelter from and be away from the battle. The English colonists went to those places and took these women and children captive with an eye to bringing them back to Boston, Hartford, uh, elsewhere 
to be servants in their homes and to export some into a reverse middle passage into the Caribbean. Hmm. Uh, and we don't we don't talk a lot about uh, slavery of the indigenous mm -hmm. people. Um, how how did it begin through the English, and why is it not talked about um, as much as we talk about African American slavery? Mm -hmm. Well, all, almost all of the explorers that made contact with uh, the Americas took Native American captives to, and brought them back to Europe, both to prove they had been to this new place. And because they wanted interpreters and guides for return trips and the establishment of colonies. So, I mean, this includes Martin Frobisher in the Aleutian Islands. This includes Verrazano in the, um, what is now the New York, New York area. And this included the early explorers of New England. They took captives back from Martha's Vineyard, from Cape Cod, and sold them in slave markets in Spain and elsewhere. Hmm. But I, I'm, I think the Pequot War is important because it really initiated this, um, this enslavement of local indigenous people by the colonists of New England that became a characteristic of their labor system and of their relations with Native Americans. And a major outcome of most of the wars involving English colonists and Native Americans almost up to the American Revolution through the 1750s. Hmm. The majority of enslaved people were Native American before 1700. And I'd say that about all of the Americas, but it, that also includes New England. So uh, people knew about this, you know, in, at the time, and in the 18th and even the 19th century, there's their novels that feature Pequot captives and enslaved Indians that were very popular in the 19th century stage plays. So I think we, we've forgotten it in part because the, the enslavement of Africans is such a big American story. It's so big, I think it, it sort of overwhelmed the story of indigenous slavery, whose numbers weren't as great. And also some people that we, we may think of as African or might have been kind of included in African-American counts or identification of the enslaved, those people were, were Native American or biracial. So there's a sort of mixing of these uh, populations, both within slavery and amongst the free communities of Native Americans, often provided refuge to African-Americans. So the, these racial categories became kind of, um, came, became much more fluid, but contemporaries sometimes just called all of these people black over mm. time. Um, and you talked about the, the whittling down of that population because of the war. Um, how many members of the Pequot tribe are still here today? Um, they, are, they number in the thousands. Um, but what's interesting is that the treaty that ended the war uh, extinguished the Pequot name. The name of Pequot was not to be mentioned anymore. Um, many people who weren't taken captive or killed by the English were sort of forced to go live with, uh, live among other indigenous groups in the area. And they were not treated as slaves. I mean, they were, they could resume village life, but they had to be in these new territories. But what happened was that many of those Pequot who, you know, moved back to their ancestral territories um, and, and were able to reestablish, um, uh, you know, a new tie to the lands that they had once occupied. Um, so they really had a reservation confirmed even in the colonial period by Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And there's been some, con some continuous habitation in that area right up through the time that the Pequot applied for federal recognition. So, you know, this, like, there's this amazing, uh, you know, determination to regroup and return to this place in what is in present day Connecticut and to maintain, you know, connections with this past, to know their own past. Um, they, they're, they're scholars too, you know, they, they read documents, they pay attention, they maintain, they maintain these stories and these lineages. 
What can we learn from the Pequot War that we can apply to our world today? Mm-hmm. Well, I write about the Pequot War and, and view it as, as what I call an, an origins moment in the history of American slavery, and, and in particular the history of slavery in New England, because Massachusetts created one of the first formal uh, uh, legal codes in English America. They were the first out of the gate with a, a giant compendium of law, and it included a law of slavery. So they're the first to have this legal code and arguably the first to have a kind of complete description of slavery and who could be enslaved and a law of slavery, even before places that we, we can associate more with slavery, like Barbados or Virginia. So Massachusetts is first out of the gate. Why is that? I think it's because of these Pequot captives, because they had taken all of these Pequot captives in the war in 1737, 1738, 17, uh, excuse me, 16, can we start over again? Yeah. So they had taken all of these captives in the war in 1637, 1638, 1641, the statute. So I think the presence of the Pequots was part of the reason for creating the Slav slavery. Um, I'd also say that the war is significant because it created these patterns for, for take, captive taking and for the enslavement of Native Americans. So um, in Metacomet Rebellion, King Philip's War, in 1675, 1676, the calls again took um, you know, thousands of captives, almost uh, a third of the surviving Wampanoag, Narragansett, Nipmuc, and other, uh, other tribal nations at that time were enslaved. Wow. Uh, people were exported uh, into the Caribbean, but many were kept in New England to be part of that, um, that, invol- that population of involuntary laborers. And the sort of practice of enslavement and involuntary servitude also continued even after or outside of warfare um, by the sentencing of people to involuntary servitude by courts and by just outright kidnapping. I mean, I, I think people are startled and they somehow think there's, there's a law and order that prevents these sorts of things. But there's, there's, there was sort of a human trafficking, hmm. particularly in um, children and women, um, and, and the un, kind of ongoing enslavement of free people, even outside of slavery. So I think in the long term, we have to think about how uh, all of these factors fed into ideas about uh, emerging ideas about race, about uh, the impact of colonization on Native Americans it wasn't just dispossession from their lands, but also included you know, the disruption of family life, the separation of mothers from children and husbands from wives, um, and all these other sort of damaging uh, effects on their ability to thrive, to to live, um, to have a, a you know em- economic basis for life, and to you know, maintain population. So this is an important part of colonization, is is slavery, enslavement, and the taking of Indian labor, as well as other Native American assets. So uh, if we think about the present day, we think about the fact that many many of these Native Native American groups who are affected by these events still exist. And many of them revived and renewed and, you know, gained federal recognition are now becoming advocates and telling a, a bigger story about New England's history that includes these Native American groups. Mm. Very multi-layered. And um, you also wrote a book, uh, Brethren by Nature. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Uh, this is Brethren by Nature. <laughs> uh, well, I, I really started this book as a, a, uh, because of I ran across a document, and it, based, it revealed that Massachusetts had auctioned off captives in this later war in Metacomet Rebellion, King Philip's War. 
Uh, so the colony, official treasurer, had held an auction of captives. And babies, families, people of all ages. And I looked at this and I, I, didn't, I didn't know about it. And in fact, it wasn't in the textbooks I was using to teach college students American history. So I, I thought someone should write a book about this. And that someone was me. <laughs> so I, I looked both backwards to see the origins of these practices and found them in the Pequot War. And then I looked past to see what happened after these major uh, events of enslavement and found these examples of, of kidnapping and the sentencing of people to servitude, using the courts, basically, to, to put people into servitude. Hmm. And November is Indigenous People Month. Uh, Thanksgiving is also uh, right around the corner. Uh, what would you like viewers to, to take away from this war and the Native American slave trade? Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to uh, make Native Americans and indigenous slavery part of this larger history of slavery that we're, we're just learning more and more about. You know, and I think that all of these major uh, research initiatives have really opened up the eyes of many Americans to the enormity of the slave trade, its impact then, and its continuing impact in the present. And I think indigenous people should be part of that conversation, both as you know, authors of their history and people experts on their history, but also when we're thinking about uh, Reparations, or when we're thinking about the long-term effects and traumas of slavery and how they continue into the present. Um, you know, one thing I'd also say, though, is uh, I was on a panel with a number of um, members of the current Mashantucket Pequot tribal leadership, and they all talked about the fact that for them, some of these uh, the after effects of slavery are still quite recent, including uh, you know the forcing of people into involuntary servitude by local officials in a kind of like in the post-reconstruction South, which happened to African-Americans. Uh, they were forced to go back and work for their former slaveholders or, or face arrest for vagrancy by local authorities. I mean, things like that happened in rural areas of Connecticut and Rhode Island and elsewhere. So one of these people's, uh, uh, one of these individuals who spoke last night, his grandfather had been bound into involuntary servitude. And I think if you look at the records in Massachusetts, um, very similar things were happening in the 19th century in which both African-American children and Native American children were supposed, were expected to work out hmm. in white households. Uh, you know, uh, an expectation that often had, you know, a little bit of force and pressure behind it. So the idea that we can only, you know, the idea of wanting to control these populations and to that the relationships can only take place in the context of, of servitude. So I think that's a, a legacy that's a little even more proximate even than the Pequot War. Margaret Ellen Newell, Professor of History at Ohio State University, thank you so much thank for your time here today. Thank you so much, Faith, for giving me the opportunity to talk about this important subject. Thank you for tuning in, Boston. That's our broadcast for tonight. We hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. For BNN News, I'm Faith Maffedon. Have a great evening.